Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. It's my pleasure now to introduce Jennifer Burton, who will introduce tonight's speaker. Uh, Dr. Burton is a visiting scholar at the University of California, San Diego, and she's also taught at the University of San Diego and at Harvard University, where she earned her PhD in English and American Literature. She's active as an author and editor in a wide variety of genres and is also a producer of independent films. Uh, Her latest book, entitled Call and Response, Key Debates in African American Studies, was co-edited with Henry Louis Gates, Jr., and was published in 2010. Please join me now in welcoming Dr. Burton. Thank you. It's my pleasure to welcome Richard Thompson Ford to the Ravel Forum. He is the George E. Osborne Professor of Law at Stanford Law School and is a regular contributor to Slate and has written for numerous newspapers, including the New York Times and the Washington Post. His first book, Racial Culture, published in 2005, critiques racial identity politics, including multiculturalism, while also strongly arguing for racial justice. In his second book, The Race Card, published in 2008 and selected as a New York Times notable book, Professor Ford argues that ubiquitous claims of discrimination, or playing the race card, are distracting attention away from serious racial injustice. He concludes that we need to, quote, begin by looking at racial injustice as a social problem to be solved collectively rather than as a series of discrete wrongs perpetuated by bad people. This year, he has two books coming out, Universal Rights Down to Earth, which analyzes human rights struggles around the world and argues for the need to shift from trying to observe universal principles and instead engage locally with local institutions, laws, and social relationships in order to bring about meaningful change. And Rights Gone Wrong, how law corrupts the struggle for equality that we'll be focusing on today and which the Kirkus Review calls a crisp analysis of the limits of our civil rights laws and a prescription for how to move beyond them. I work on African-American history, as Dan said, and recently reviewed the history of African-American debate with Henry Louis Gates in our book, Call and Response. And from my perspective, one of the most striking things about Rich's work is his ability to pull back and look at long-running debates from a fresh vantage point. This is particularly important in our time of polarized politics, when so many debates are reduced to little more than alternating talking points. And while he grapples with conservative and liberal ideas, he maintains an eye on the greater social good. He also has a strong sense of history, which comes through in his discussions of the powerful and important role that civil rights legislation has played in eliminating legal discrimination in America and also in his critique that current civil rights cases have moved us away from the historical basis for civil rights legislation as a route toward eliminating group discrimination. Many of you may have seen the stellar review of Rights Gone Wrong in yesterday's New York Times. George Washington law professor Jeff Rosen writes, Ford does not offer an equivocal, cautious, middle-of-the-road critique of civil rights law. His book is sharp and surprising and cast the discrimination debate in a clarifying new light. Will you join me in welcoming Richard Thompson Ford? 
In his New York Times review of your last book, The Race Card, Harvard sociologist Orlando Patterson praised your work, writing, the end result is a vigorous and long overdue shakeup of the nation's stale discourse on race. In this new book, do you, what, is it motivated by stale ideas that you think need shaking up? In a sense, yes. I want to attack the idea that every social injustice is a civil rights issue. And I think since the 1960s in particular, there's a very powerful tendency to think of social injustice issues almost exclusively in terms of civil rights. The result has been that a wide range of disparate issues with different causes that are in many ways incommensurable are kind of being shoehorned into a single approach, an approach that tends to focus on um, bias, on bigots, on discrimination as the central evil. And I think that's been bad. Both Another consequence has been an over-reliance on courts and on legalistic arguments as a mechanism for dealing with social injustice and a relative lack of attention to other forms, everything from um, public persuasion, changing hearts and minds, to um, and, and um, also the legislative process, um, the popular branches of government. And um, so the result has been a narrowing of imagination about how to think about social uh, injustice and a narrowing of imagination in thinking about potential solutions. And those are the kind of ideas that I, I do think that they're stale ideas. I think they're ideas that um, are important and play an important role, but have been um, kind of occupied the field and crowded out other ways of thinking about the issues. Oh, interesting. That sort of ties into something you write about in the race card of this idea of um, racism without racists. Is that, can, you, can you talk about that a little bit? Is that connected, something that you're moving on and connecting with this book? Yes, absolutely. So the idea of racism without racist, as I see it, is that many of the most severe social injustices, particularly in the area of race, but also in many other areas that are addressed by civil rights laws and civil rights-type legislation, um, don't involve bigots or racists, or at least they don't prove that bigots and racists and bias, animus, are not the main causes any longer. Instead, what we have are problems that are much more complex in nature that are the result of the legacy of past discriminatory practices, but perhaps not contemporary racists or bigots, um, cases in which if there is bigotry, it's very difficult to detect um, in some cases may even be unconscious, in cases in which there are a range of other social forces and institutional day-to-day practices that may in some sense be innocent, um, but at least innocent in terms of intent, in terms of the mental state mm-hmm. of people um, engaging in those practices, but nevertheless perpetuate uh, injustices. And it's this kind of second generation of uh, racial injustice and social injustice that we most of desperately calls out for new approaches. Okay. What would be a specific example of something that you think um, we need a different kind of approach to, to confront? Well, and one example involves the very high incarceration rates of African-American men. There's a great deal of data about this. In my, to my mind, it's one of the most severe remaining legacies of America's long, sad history of overt racial discrimination. And yet... It can first, now I don't want to suggest that there are no racist police, no racist prosecutors. There certainly are. And, but 
the extent of the disparity can't be explained by old school Jim Crow style bigotry. Instead, you have a collection of, of factors including neighborhood segregation, such that um, racial minority groups, particularly African-Americans, are more likely to reside in neighborhoods where crime rates are high. They're more likely, therefore, to get caught up in crime, and in particular, the kind of conspicuous crimes that attract police attention. Um, you have the, the problem of, um, of, of economically deprived neighborhoods, neighborhoods in which, in some cases, the... Um, Gray market, um, which is already theaters on the edge of criminality, is one of the main sources of income for many people. Right. So you have a whole, uh, the isolation of the underclass uh, such that they don't have access to job opportunities, they don't have access to good role models. All of these kind of factors, which are a legacy of past discrimination, but for the most part, not the result of ongoing bigotry and ongoing overt discrimination. These are result in... Um, high incarceration rates for young black men. So you have a collection of social injustices, but the attempt to address them by trying to find a bigot is, um, is not going to produce results. Right, right. Now you said most of these can't be explained by, by bigotry, but some of them can. So are sure. you suggesting a two-pronged approach where you do use the civil rights laws for... Um, for cases that they would might apply, like racial profiling or corrupt police, oh, but oh. then for larger issues, look for policy or look for uh, other kinds of solutions. Yes, yes. I, I, I'm certainly not suggesting that we abandon the civil rights approach. There continue to be instances of, of overt discrimination and um, covert discrimination that we can detect and that we can discover, and civil rights laws are important in uh, correcting those forms of discrimination. But what I'm suggesting is that the attempt to shoehorn the entire problem into mm-hmm. that relatively narrow approach it has been unsuccessful. And in many cases, we find that it's either very difficult to, um, it's difficult to prove discrimination and it's controversial whether discrimination is the main cause of the problem. Mm-hmm. Even in something like racial profiling, the fact that there's a disparity in the number of people, for instance, stopped by police. Or, um, or arrested by police in terms of race doesn't in and of itself prove that the police have acted with racially discriminatory bias. It may be that, again, because crime rates are higher in neighborhoods, in, in, in many minority neighborhoods, the um, natural focus of the police on high crime neighborhoods has led to some of these disparities. And so we need to look to more comprehensive solutions as well, not in exclusion of the civil okay. rights approach, but as a supplement. Hmm. You, you open this new book with the case of the Gina Six. Uh, can you talk about that case and why you think it sets up some of these main arguments for rights gone wrong? Sure. So the Gina Six is an example of a case that got a lot of notoriety because it drew attention to a real problem, but it turned out not to be a great example of the broader social problem. The broader problem is, again, the high incarceration rates of young black men, problems in the criminal justice system, racial inequities and disparities. The specific case involved um, six young black men in a small town in the South who were arrested for an attack, an assault. One in particular was charged initially with attempted murder, um, an obviously gross overreaching on the part of the prosecutor, a huge overcharge. Um, But that charge was subsequently reduced. He was also tried as an adult, and that um, conviction was reversed on appeal. 
But the surrounding circumstances were such that initially it sounded like the kind of perfect case for an old school Jim Crow style racial bigotry. There was a tree that was in the school in Gina that was um, described as the white tree where only white students could sit. Um, and when a student asked whether he could sit under the white tree, the next day there was a noose hanging from the tree, or not the next day, that's, but later, mm. was a noose hanging. The, the racial tensions began to run high. And it looked from the outside like a little redneck town that was persecuting these six young men. Um, as it turned out, the facts um, on closer examination were somewhat more ambiguous. Um, first of all, the, the assault was a real assault. It was six athletes they beat one young man senseless um, he had, uh, until he was unconscious and was taken to the hospital. Um, so some criminal prosecution was appropriate. Uh, the incidents that were seen as obvious instances of racial bigotry were on further examination more ambiguous. It wasn't clear that the white tree was really restricted to white students. Later people said, in fact, all students of all races sat under the tree um, so each, the, the point is that um, as the facts became more ambiguous, it looked less and less like an obvious case of racial injustice and more and more like a complicated case right. um, that involved pr- prosecutorial overzealousness, that involved racial tensions in which all sides bore some blame, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So one of the categories of rights gone wrong is sort of these complicated, ambiguous stories that we want to, where people try to fit into a narrow um, possibly old-fashioned sort of vision of a, a one right side and one wrong side. And you're saying it's much more complicated than that. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that doesn't mean there's not an injustice. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Now, there's other kinds of categories that you talk about. Um, for example, uh, some of the most contentious issues that you discuss have to do with education. Um, can you talk about, for example, your discussion of accommodations in the public schools uh, for things like ADHD. Uh, Yes. So the story here is that we begin with, uh, because of the way legal analysis often works, we operate by analogy. And so we begin with the case where civil rights type um, solutions are a relatively good fit, and we move through analogy um, to cases where they're a pretty bad fit. Okay. Um, so in the case of disabilities, the case where there's a, a pretty good fit involve um, severe disabilities that are conspicuous, things like um, someone who's in a wheelchair, someone who's legally blind. In those cases, it's quite clear that throughout American history, there's been overt bias and discrimination. People are either squeamish, um, harbored stereotypes about the disabled such that they discriminated against them in a way that's analogous to the types of Jim Crow-style discrimination that... Um, that people of color have faced, the types of discrimination that women have faced Mm -hmm. in workforces and public accommodations. But we moved from that to, now in the public schools, the, the, the move has been to say, then if you don't accommodate someone with a disability, you're discriminating against them. Now, again, you can see how you, if you look at someone who's in a wheelchair, I refuse to put in a ramp in order to help the person with a wheelchair gain access to a building. But you might say, well, maybe the reason you refused is because you're biased against people in wheelchairs. You don't want them around. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we moved then to cases like ADHD on the other end of the spectrum a mild disability that in many cases experts find hard to distinguish from what you might call garden variety, uh, a garden variety wandering mind. So 
then, um, and it, this, the, in, in the milder cases, the experts are, um, are, are in agreement about that, that it can be hard to distinguish. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have a case where an accommodation, in other words, something that might take the form of something like more time on a timed exam, um, or in the case of hyperactivity, immunity from normal school discipline, um, perhaps in some cases one-on-one extra tutoring. Um, it may be that that would help, that'll help that student. But the question is whether in a context of scarce resources, if the same types of intervention would be just as useful for the student with the garden variety wandering mind, the one that doesn't have the diagnosis, mm-hmm. whether it makes sense as a matter of civil rights to say that the one student is entitled to extra resources from a cash-strapped school and the other student is stuck with um, the, in some cases, quite inadequate education that most kids get. My claim is that in these circumstances, we need to look to improving the educational experience for everybody. Right. And that way may, may well mean um, making quite significant changes in the curriculum, but that looking at this as a question of individual rights doesn't make sense. It produces perverse results and um, distributable, di- distributive inequities that are hard to defend. Yeah. It's an interesting question because as a parent with children in the public schools, you, you also want your children's potential to be maximized, you know. So, so from a social justice perspective, I can totally see that you'd say, oh, we want. I mean, I'm thinking of an example, say, that's more extreme, but if you have um, those preemie babies in the hospital that are a million dollars. So from an outside perspective, you say, oh, you know, we have such scarce healthcare resources. We can't, we can't put them all toward one person. But if you're the parent, you know, yes. two million, three million, I mean, you, you, you're in a different sort of position. So it seems like that's a... I, I really like that you open up the issue in your book and you would make people think about sort of what are these larger moral issues. Um, but at the same time, they're balancing individual, you know, wanting to, the best for their children. Oh, so it's, sure. it's an interesting case. I mean, I don't, I, I don't blame the parents of those children for pushing as hard as they can to get every advantage for their kids. That's what parents are supposed to do. The, but the question as a matter of public policy is whether it makes sense to set up a system in which um, people, one group of people uh, are entitled to a claim on scarce resources and another group of people are not entitled when in many ways the, 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 the two individuals are similarly situated. Because, right. of course, the kid with a garden variety wandering mind, well, they have parents too. And that, you know, yeah. they, they, those parents want to maximize their kid's education, but they're stuck with, um, you know, what's left. Right, right. Or they're not able to navigate the system as well. Or they're not able to navigate the system as well. So then you bring in an inequity that involves the resources, the wealth, and the savviness of the parent. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so in drawing on public resources, you have a situation in which um, there's an almost built-in bias in favor of the, the wealthy, the powerful, as opposed to those without resources and without sophistication. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Um, Many of the examples you cite in Rights Gone Wrong are of individuals who, who are using civil rights laws to get what they see as their own rights or entitlements. You argue extremists on both the left and the right have hijacked civil rights for personal advantage. Can you talk about some of the more political ones of these, of these issues, something on the left or something on the right? Sure. So, I mean, although I have to say that sometimes it can be hard to tell the left and the right apart in some of these debates, <laughs> but... Um, not always. But not always, not <laughs> always. Um, so, I mean, here, I'll give you an example, and then you can decide whether you think it's left or right. Um, <laughs> we have, um, 
both in federal law and in state law, and the cases I'm about to talk about are all under state um, civil rights laws, but laws against sex discrimination are extremely important in keep making sure that women have access to the workplace and that women have access on an equal footing to public accommodations, um, places like restaurants and bars and what have you. Now, um, these laws have been used by, in order to overturn ladies' night at um, local bars and restaurants. And you know, California is one of the states where ladies' night is now a violation of civil rights laws. Um, it's, it's also true in many other uh, American states. And um, in fact, one person even sued to overturn a Mother's Day promotion on the basis that it was sex discrimination. He didn't win that suit. But uh, my, my point is um, that this was a plausible lawsuit to a lot of people because we've taken an extreme view of the prohibition against sex discrimination. Rather than look at it um, according to its original purposes and according to a sensible public policy purpose, which is to um, make sure that women uh, have equal access to the market and equal access to public institutions, we've taken a kind of abstract view that would also sweep ladies' night up under the same prohibition. That doesn't make sense. Now, um, whether that's left or right, I'm not <laughs> sure. Um, well, yeah. Which, I think that, it's complicated. It's, it's complicated because some, some feminists would argue you know, equality means equality no matter what, and or, you've well, got to get rid of ladies. Not, not even that simplistically. I mean, you could argue that... Um, I really found myself thinking a lot about, about uh, ladies' night, because... <laughs> and I know it seems so funny. Well, the, the funniest thing about it was I was reading through, and I thought, well, wait a minute. I mean, if women are getting special treatment there, and if it's economic, you know, women are paid less, and isn't this... Maybe if, if we get rid of these kind of customs maybe that would be a good kind of idea. So I'm thinking this, and then I'm reading that it's actually men who are suing to get the discounts. So I'm thinking, oh, yes. come on, you know. So, so I was going back and forth when I was reading sort of how it was playing out in the courts. Um, but that seems like it's one that's more complicated. It's, it's not a man wanting his Mother's Day bag. You know, it, it could be that these things have a higher price, and we don't know how to get rid of uh, women getting paid less well, we can talk about that and sort of uh, the direct yes, attempts yes. now about the Walmart case, class action suit. I mean, and to let ladies lie, lie for a little bit. But okay. it seems like, you know, if we got rid of those kinds of things that are the special treatment of women, we could then see, see what happens. Maybe, maybe there wouldn't be the sense that they could be paid less because they're going to be treated all the time or... I have my doubts that the cause and effect would work in that way. But, um, and, but, but seriously, I think that it's important, if we keep our eye on the appropriate goal, I suspect that we would have better luck both in dealing with the wage gap between men and women while leaving these kind of trivial matters or, or, or perverse suits like Ladies' Night to the side. Um, one, at least we wouldn't be wasting resources mm -hmm. um, litigating cases that, that don't really amount to much. But at the same time, I think it's important to zero in on the fact that when we're talking about a social inequity, um, they, we, 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 we in this case are talking about... Um, any or discriminatory treatment against women, and um, the idea that a guy that wants a free drink at ladies' night is the appropriate well, no, point not of the man. I'm, is I'm, I'm all yeah. Um, I'm, I'm with you there. Okay. <laughs> I was just saying the larger sort of custom. I'd just as rather if it went away. Um, but let, let's talk about the uh, class action suit uh, that Walmart 
was, um, that was against Walmart. So sort of more direct attempts to use the yes. law. When you would actually, this shows how much these issues are in play in that I first received um, the copy the preview copy of Rights Gone Wrong. And in it, it said, you know, we'll see. There's sort of this open possibility. Then by the time the actual book came out, it had been dismissed as a class action. So, so right. can you talk about that? Because these things are all happening as we speak now. Yes. Well, the, the Walmart case was a very interesting and important um, piece of litigation. The, the, most of the suit involves statistical evidence, or most of the evidence that the plaintiffs um, presented. Mm -hmm. Um, and the statistical evidence was quite compelling, that there was a pattern of discrimination on the basis of sex at Walmart, such that women were not getting anything close to the number of promotions that one would expect an, um, an even-handed employer to have. Um, Walmart drew its managers mainly from its uh, hourly wage employees, and although the hourly wage employees were something like... Um, 70, I want to say 75% women, um, by the time you got into upper management, um, the, number, uh, the, the number of female managers was more like 10%. Right. Um, the problem in the Walmart litigation was that there, um, it was hard to find, a, it was impossible to find a policy, a single policy on the part of Walmart as a corporate entity and the national management that um, was responsible for all of these various instances of sex discrimination. Instead, it was individual managers and individual stores. Right. Um, and so what joined all of these cases together? The Supreme Court decided nothing joined them except the women, um, except the, the fact that the plaintiffs were women and that lawsuit. And so they dismissed the class action. Now, the difficulty this raises is that it's going to be very difficult in many of these cases for the individual women to prove their case individually, because the statistical evidence might show that a lot of women were discriminated against, but it doesn't show that you were one of them. Right. Uh, so in addition, the um, promotion criterion used were subjective. They were things like integrity and team spirit. Um, so it's very easy for bias to hide out in the fog of subjectivity that these kind of terms um, have, these kind of decisions have. Mm -hmm. um, in this day and age, it's rare that managers blurt out a discriminatory motive. They know better than that. And so rooting out the discrimination is going to be pretty tough. Mm -hmm. um, the result is that the discrimination is likely to go unremedied. Uh, so um, the class action might have been a clunky fit. And that's why it was rejected by the Supreme Court. And Walmart's lawyers did a great job at pointing out the way in which it wasn't a perfect fit. But right now, we don't have an alternative. And so the, in dealing with these subtler forms of discrimination that are now the most, um, the most prevalent right. and the most serious social injustices, um, civil rights have, are, are limited in their ability to, to make a difference. Interesting. Going back to educational issues, uh, Affirmative action, which was originally intended to be about the big picture. Uh, where, where are we now on that? Ah, well, it's a, <laughs> that's a very big question. Um, from, a, what, from a civil rights law standpoint. Well, from a civil rights, rights law standpoint, um, affirmative action is legally acceptable in a fairly narrow range of circumstances, but what we've seen is the legal debate around affirmative action has, um, it, it's done several interesting things. One, the legal principles that were at one time understood to be um, 
in support of things like integration, mm -hmm. um, have now been turned against policies that are designed to integrate workforces, um, schools, and what have you, affirmative action policies, um, based, again, on a relatively narrow idea that the legal injury is discrimination, and discrimination narrowly defined. Well, affirmative action is discrimination, narrowly defined. Um, so that's, um, that's an instance of the kind of thinking that I'm describing. Now, that's not to say that affirmative action should be controversial, um, but the, the precise way in which the law is dealt with it seems to obscure most of the important questions rather than illuminate them. That's one of my concerns. Mm -hmm. um, we don't make much of a distinction, for instance, now in the popular debate, as a result, I think, of the legal debate. We don't make much of a distinction between affirmative action and higher education, um, between affirmative action and public contracting. Um, these are very different contexts in which very different concerns may be brought to bear. Um, and one, it's entirely plausible that a sensible person would say that they favored one and opposed another. But mm -hmm. the public debate now completely obscures those things because we're focused on a relatively narrow idea of the issue in affirmative action. One other interesting thing that's happened in affirmative action as a result of the way the law is dealt with it is that much of the debate around whether or not we should have affirmative action, um, and particularly in the higher educational context, has been truncated as a result of legal opinions that have said there's, only, there's basically only one rationale that's acceptable for affirmative action in higher education. That's diversity. So right. after Bakke and the diversity, um, when, when diversity and almost only diversity was um, what was described as the appropriate rationale for affirmative action, you had a narrowing of discussion at, um, in universities, precisely the place where we would hope to have a robust debate. Um, universities now have to say, it's diversity and only diversity. That's why we're doing this. And so a number of other reasons, like remedying past discrimination, remedying societal discrimination, those were ruled out by the Supreme Court um, for the most part. Uh, and um, I'm oversimplifying a tiny bit, but uh, the result has been um, a shrink, a, a kind of constricted debate about something that we really need to have a robust debate about. And so the state of affirmative action now um, of, of the, con the popular conversation about it, I think, is, um, is an example of rights gone wrong. The issue that the legislation was too ambiguous, too open-ended, so that the courts are then, depending where the political mood is, they're interpreting it um, as they see. I mean, it, it, is, the, is the solution to go back and make, the, let, make different legislation that is more um, specific? Would that, would that remedy it, or...? Well, in, this, in, in the affirmative action context, it's not legislation that's attacking affirmative action. It's a constitutional principle. Right. So the constitution... Exactly. And the Equal Protection Clause is, is okay. what it is. Um, and it is written at a very high level of generality. And so it's um, almost, you know, it's inevitable that courts will uh, have to interpret it and give it life and substance. Um, but what I'm suggesting is the precise way the courts have interpreted it has been unfortunate um, in that it's narrowed the debate that we can have about, um, about an important social question. Right. How much of this has to do with how um, there was a concerted effort on the part of conservatives to get more conservative judges on all levels of, of, of the courts? Certainly that's part of the story. Mm -hmm. And... Um, but it's not the whole story. Okay. So I'd say a few things about that. One, the courts, 
in, in the 1960s, liberals had an idea, and I think this, many still do, that the courts are naturally the um, vanguard of social justice, that the courts are going to be our last resort in the, the face of a potentially hostile political popular um, conversation or political process. Mm -hmm. um, that hasn't been the historic role of the courts. The, in many ways, the progressive era, uh, the progressive jurisprudence of the Warren Court was a historical blip. And we, for a very long period of time, the courts hadn't occupied that role. They were quite conservative. Um, one could see the um, later courts, the Roberts Court of today, as a return to form. Oh, interesting. Um, that's, at most, the courts are, they're lagging the political process. And so to the extent you have a political process, because, of course, the um, politicians ultimately appoint federal judges. Um, so... Um, they, they, they lag the political process, but they're not really distinct from it. Uh, and that's something that's important to note. Um, but I'd also say that it's not just that the conservative effort to, um, to, to take over the judiciary, um, which is, of course, a natural part of the political process. It's what any party in power would try to do. Right. Uh, but it's also... The narrowing of ideas about social justice, it's the reliance on courts, it's the reliance on individual rights that have left us without other options. And that's really what I want to focus on, um, or what I, what I try to focus on in the book. Okay, these other options of policy or of changing policy hearts and minds. Changing hearts and minds. Um, just the, the whole range of, uh, uh, and, and new ways of thinking about the questions as well. So rather right. than thinking about them in primarily in terms of individual entitlements and legal entitlements, we could think about them in terms of broad social policy questions that may not involve legal entitlements or individual rights at all. Huh. Now, is there any argument that some of these laws should be reformed, or should we just move on and try other things? Um, I think some should be reformed. And, um, I mean, I, I could have a long list of potential reform proposals <laughs> that um, would, you know, would take a variety of forms. But, uh -huh. So, we're, yes, um, civil rights laws could be reformed in order to address the more pressing forms of discrimination that we're um, facing now. Mm -hmm. Now, in some sense, some of these reforms would be kind of back to the future because they're proposals and ideas that were advanced in the 1970s and um, either rejected or, or narrowed by subsequent um, judicial opinions, okay. um, but I think many would involve new approaches and approaches that might um, trade off, to, for lack of a better term, individual entitlements in favor of social um, justice. So let me just give one example. Uh, if we go back to the Walmart case, imagine that instead of a focus on individual entitlements, we had a focus on laws that would try to change the day-to-day -day practices of businesses. One possibility would be, to some extent, we know the kinds of management practices that are vulnerable to bias and those that are less vulnerable to bias. Now, businesses aren't required by civil rights laws to adopt the practices that are less vulnerable to bias, but they could be encouraged. And one way of encouraging them might be to say, if you adopt practices that are known to reduce bias, you can enjoy some immunity from certain types of individual lawsuits. So we'd have greater collective justice. All of those women who right now can't prove their lawsuits against Walmart um, would be better off if Walmart were encouraged to have practices that were less likely to be vulnerable to bias. Um, and in order to encourage Walmart to do that, they might enjoy some kind of civil rights immunity. Interesting. So That's give just it an one incentive. possible idea. Uh -huh. 
Um, it's interesting that on one hand, civil rights law has outlived its ability to address some of these more complicated problems that you've been talking about. And yet we're also in the middle of, or in the beginning and middle of the gay rights fight for civil rights legislation, for, for being part of that. Um, can you talk a little bit about, say, the Defense of Marriage Act and, and how you see this playing into uh, these issues we've been talking about? Sure. I mean, well, one thing to notice, the, the gay rights struggle is really facing the kind of first generation of social injustices, the, the overt bigotry, overt discrimination. That, um, now, that certainly hasn't gone away with respect to racial minorities and women, but it's, it's a smaller part of the problem. Um, and for gay men and lesbians, I, I think it's the largest part of the problem. And so something like the Defense of Marriage Act, something... Um, you know, is an example of that. Now there, the conventional civil rights approach is appropriate, and it's remarkably effective. And the history of the civil rights movement is that civil rights were remarkably effective against overt discrimination, that it much more effective than many people expected. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, particularly in the area of public accommodations, the kind of you know, whites-only um, laws fell very quickly and without, with much less resistance than people thought. So um, for those first-generation kind of biases, the conventional civil rights model is, uh, is a good fit. Uh-huh. And that's really where we are with most of the issues um, that are currently facing the gay rights struggle. Now, they may well face second-generation issues, too, as time goes on. But right now, the focus is on these, these, these forms of overt bias. In a way, it ties into your book in that the laws are... Uh, the Senate Ju- uh, Judiciary Committee just repealed DOMA, right? But they don't think they can pass it through the general Senate. They know they can't. So it's sort of in a, in a place going through that system. And at the same time, we have cases um, coming through the judiciary system. How do you see those two different kinds of processes and how they can help um, change society? Which, which of those would be more effective, do you think? Well, it's, it's, it's a very interesting and complex question. On the one hand, litigation can be the spark that starts, um, that, that, that inspires legislative change. And so, for instance, um, a conventional way of thinking about the relationship between Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is that Brown sparked that change. Right. That Brown made the Civil Rights Act possible. But it's also important to note that the Civil Rights Act was necessary. It was necessary in order to effectuate Brown. Very little happened in the South in the 10 years between Brown and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which tied federal funding to serious efforts for desegregation. Um, And it's also important to note that change achieved through legislation in the minds of many has greater legitimacy than change achieved through courts. So when social change, particularly on contentious issues, is achieved through courts, um, it's all, the, the argument is always available that this is a counter-majoritarian and illegitimate um, intervention by the courts in the political process. It thwarts the will of the people. Whereas when the change is achieved through legislation, that argument's not available. And in gay marriage, we're seeing already um, advocates... Um, gay rights advocates thinking hard about this trade-off, thinking hard about whether it's better to um, win in the way um, they won in Massachusetts through uh, litigation Mm -hmm. or the way they won in New York 
through legislation. And in New York, the lawyers are arguing um, our victory has even greater legitimacy because it came through the political process. Right, right. That's so interesting. Um, can you talk about class divisions among African Americans and how these might be also affecting yes. some of these civil rights ideas and issues? Yes, absolutely. And I th- this is one of the most important and um, most overlooked problems and questions in thinking about contemporary civil rights. Increasingly, the division between um, upper middle class and middle class African Americans and the underclass is grown so stark Mm -hmm. that it's fair to say the kinds of injustices that um, the relatively privileged face are different, not just in degree, but in kind from those that the underclass face. And as a result, civil rights laws that lump them all together tend to misdiagnose both sets of problems. So for the privilege, for people like me, the kinds of racial injustices that we face are much more likely to be subtle. They're likely to, be, to take the forms of um, snubs, social snubs, um, kind of invisible impediments to career advancement, serious problems, but very different in kind than the um, problems of the underclass that are largely the result of isolation from opportunities, isolation from the mainstream, mm-hmm. um, poverty, poor public services, high crime neighborhoods. And so increasingly we need just very different solutions. Fixing the problems of the underclass requires investment in underclass communities, um, better schools, reforms to the criminal justice system to prevent um, prosecutorial uh, um, misconduct or or overzealousness, Um, changes to drug laws, for instance, that are responsible for most of the disparity in incarceration. Mm -hmm. Um, On the other hand, the changes that would address the problems that the more privileged face are more like those that I was describing in the Walmart context. They're things that are designed to root out subtler types of biases. And so they're just very different problems. And it's not all that useful to lump them all together under the category of discrimination. Yeah. Um, Well, we're going to have to close, unfortunately. It's such a wonderful conversation. Um, I know. Uh, I was thinking when I was reading your book uh, from a quote from uh, Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail where he talks about, he says, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects us all directly, indirectly. And your work is so cognizant of these different levels, the individual being part of this larger whole. And I think it's such an important conversation that you're stimulating. I'm very thankful that you've written this book. And I'm looking forward to the questions from the audience. Thank Thank you you for for joining us. Okay. Um, First question says, would you tell us your opinion regarding the judicial opinions of Clarence Thomas? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'll say a little bit. Clarence Thomas's opinions, I can only talk about a a, a narrow range of them. There's so many, and and his jurisprudence is interesting on a number of levels. But um, particularly, I'll talk about those involving race. And what's fascinating is this kind of mix of um, a strong libertarian conservative 
Tiv and Malcolm X in the same opinion, <laughs> that you'll get very often... Um, so, for instance, in a lot of the school desegregation cases and the affirmative action cases, he says it's insulting that someone would think that the only way blacks can get an equal education is to be in the same room with whites. You know, it's almost pulled directly from Malcolm X. Um, and, you know, yet at the same time, of course, he's one of the most, um, most strident uh, free market conservatives on the court. And that mix of things that... For many, it would seem quite incongruous. Um, I think characterizes most of Clarence Thomas's discussions about race. Now, I don't agree, as it won't surprise you to hear, with <laughs> um, his jurisprudence about race, and in particular, I don't agree with his consistent assertions that it's impossible to tell the difference between benign and malign forms of discrimination, um, that all forms of racial classification by the state should be treated with equal contempt and, and, and suspiciousness. My view and the view that I push throughout this book is that it is possible to tell the difference between benign and malign forms of discrimination and that it's the job of judges to evaluate um, these conflicts in a context-specific and nuanced way. I don't. I mean, the ju- they're called judges for a reason. They're supposed to exercise judgment, and the judgments may be hard to exercise, but that's why we pay them. Uh, if it were as simple as the people who advance this simple idea. Um, all racial classifications are the same. If it were that simple, then we could have a, a computer doing the job <laughs> and save a lot of money. Uh, so that's, that's my, my strongest point of disagreement with Clarence Thomas, although there are others. <laughs> okay. Authors such as... Uh, I'm sorry, it's a little hard to read the handwriting. Beauchamp argue that racial discrimination is still so severe that we need the strongest laws. Authors such, authors such as Rachel say that we should determine affirmative action on the base of desert. What exactly is your stance? How do we... I'm sorry. Can, can we get... Uh, <laughs> how do we realize role models... So sort of which, which, how can we look, hmm, is there an argument that we need stronger laws, I guess might be one question to take out of this. Um, uh, oh, okay. I think that in a sense we need stronger laws, but also um, civil rights are doing both not enough and too much at the same time. And so... Again, with the subtler forms of bias, the systemic forms of bias, we need more. But they may not take the form, and they probably wouldn't take the form, of civil rights laws as conventionally understood, individual entitlements and what have you. But um, on, the, uh, on the other hand, when the laws is applied indiscriminately, um, then sometimes it does too much. As many of the cases in my book are designed to illustrate, we don't need to say that a law against sex discrimination prohibits ladies' night. Um, and, and so it's, it's both. It's a both-and type of problem, which is, I think, one of the vexing things about the, and, and challenging things about the contemporary moment. Mm-hmm. This is a sort of a curveball. I don't know. Please comment on the Henrietta Lacks, uh, the Gila story. Do you have any oh. thoughts about that? Do you see that as a civil rights issue, where oh, her wow. um, cells were taken and it's, 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 it's completely a, it's a curveball? A, right. <laughs> I mean, it's it was a interesting very... if you had had a chance to read that or think about it. Right. I I I, I am aware of the the, the controversy. It, this is 
it resonates because in so many instances, historically African Americans have um, been exploited and had their contributions taken without getting due acknowledgement or due credit. Mm -hmm. And so there's a sense in which this story seems like the epitome of that kind of history that includes everything from artistic contributions to the contributions of labor and what have you. I think that's one of the reasons that this book resonates Uh um, so much. And so in that sense, yes, it's a civil rights issue. Now that, but but it, it, it does fall into this category of the kind of civil rights issue that doesn't directly involve discrimination or the bigot. Instead, it involves a social structure in which a particular class of people are subject, are, are vulnerable to, to, um, to exploitation of a variety of kinds. It's uh-huh. a more complex story. Right, right. It's a wonderful book. Um, this is another hard one. Uh, Please talk, talk more about how you would change hearts and minds. Ah, well. Um, <laughs> Please solve all the problems. Yes. Well, I, I, the, one of the points I really want to advance with this book is that we need to think about the social justice struggle from a wide range of perspectives, many of which might not involve individual entitlements, law, courts, things like that. Mm -hmm. And so changing hearts and minds comes into that category of thinking. And that right now, um, in many ways, the uh, advocates for social justice are losing the fight for hearts and minds because of the perceived need to shoehorn everything into a civil rights style narrative. So the Gina Six, again, is a good Uh. example of this. You start off with a narrative that just seems perfect. It's a bigoted town in the old south, and it's, it's just the perfect instance. But as it unfolds, it's ambiguous. And a lot of people have legitimate objections to the idea that it's a straightforward civil rights issue. And by the end, you've probably lost all of the people that you might have convinced. You're preaching to the choir. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that seems to me a consistent pattern with many of the, much of the civil rights agitation and, and, and activism of today that um, it, 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 we lost the battle um, to win hearts and minds of those who were not already convinced. Um, uh-huh. Now, how to fix that is a complicated question because so many of the social injustices aren't susceptible to a dramatic narrative. They're not susceptible to the narrative of an individual who we know has been done wrong. Instead, they're complicated sociological analyses and statistics that lead people to fall asleep and things like that. Um, And that's the challenge. And I don't have a straightforward answer to how to address that challenge, but that is, I believe, the challenge of today, to find a way to make these subtler and more systemic and more systematic injustices come alive and be real to people um, without insisting there's a bigot um, and there's an individual victim, when oftentimes that's going to be a hard narrative to maintain. Mm. Have divide-and-conquer strategies by economic elites helped perpetuate a climate where racial characteristics and identification take on exaggerated importance by members of the general population? Ah, that's a very interesting question. Um, I'm not sure about strategies by elites, but I would say that there are many instances in which the way civil rights policies have played out, have exacerbated um, divisions between uh, the working class 
I mean, an example involves school um, desegregation and busing. One of the things that happened with school desegregation was that um, relatively early on, it was decided by the Supreme Court that busing uh, could not reach suburban school districts unless the school district in question was, could be found to have engaged in de jure discrimination. So the case involved Detroit. Um, Detroit couldn't be desegregated within, its, um, within the, the, the city of Detroit because by the time the case got to the federal courts, the city was 85% black. Um, and the court held that you couldn't reach the suburban school districts that might be able to contribute to meaningful desegregation. Now, one of the results of that was that the places where the wealthy lived were in most American metropolitan areas exempt um, from desegregation. And it was the inner cities, the cities that, the old cities that could be found to have engaged in de jure segregation where the busing happened, which intensified its effects within those cities, Mm -hmm. but also made it appear to many that um, desegregation and busing were reserved for the relatively less well-off whites. Um, and that kind of class-based resentment played a role in resistance to desegregation. So the story of South Boston, for instance, where, in the, where some of the resistance to desegregation was the strongest, was certainly a story of racial bigotry, but it was also a story of resentment against elites um, and the feeling that the white working class had been abandoned by the white elites. Um, and so, yes, I mean, there are instances, yeah. and I could tell other stories, where that kind of antagonism has been, has, has been the result, the unintended result, perhaps, of the, um, of the application of civil rights laws, and it's had poisonous consequences for political dynamics ever since. Yeah. So this will be our last question. What advice would you have for individuals to exercise their power or positions in society on a day-to-day basis to fight the more subtle forms of bias? So sort of an individual moral, uh, what, what could people do who want to make a difference on an on a individual basis? I would say focus on the local issues and the issues that are closest to you and look for the ways that um, subtle biases may be affecting the decisions of the institutions that you're a part of. Um, and ask, the, the, the difficult part with this is that very often the practices that are vulnerable to bias or give rise to bias are also practices that are justified for other reasons. So for instance, in the Walmart case, um, Letting individual store managers have broad discretion to make decisions based on subjective criterion, that is a, might be a good business strategy. It might be a perfectly good way for a business to go about conducting its affairs, but it's also one that's likely to be vulnerable to bias. And so then one faces a conflict. Are you willing to do what it takes in order to root bias out of your institution, even at some cost, even when... There may be good, perfectly you know, neutral reasons to go on and do what you're doing now. And I think most institutions face these kind of questions, mm-hmm. where there are good institutional reasons not to change and not to try to address the problem. And there may well be some cost or some upheaval um, in trying to address those questions. But being willing to do that, to, look, to take a hard look at your own institution, your own um, practices, and ask, whether they, they, they may be contributing to social injustice. That's what people, I think, could do on a day-to-day basis to make a difference. It's interesting. Um, one thing that uh, just related to that, 
when I was reading through your book, I was seeing cases where individuals might fight for entitlement um, on a legitimate thing that was tied to um, racism or sexism, but it was it was individual, it was small, and that that seemed problematic. And so maybe they need to fight to choose to f- choose their battles, right? Make sure it's something that's a larger issue. Like for example, you talked about Oprah Winfrey with the Hermes store, and I was thinking, well, she she was denied entry, but the clor- the store was closed. And I thought, well, what if the store had been open? Would that be a good case that she should have fought? But then, you know, is is sort of getting into stores the larger issues right now that are really serious? So I think opening up, reading the book really opens up a lot of these questions. So one thing you should do is buy his book and read it. Because um, it really it makes you think about a lot of things that you may, may already have opinions on and, and opens up the kinds of ways that you might connect um, as an individual to them in a wonderfully interesting way. Thank you so much for, for coming tonight. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.